HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. As the news of coronavirus reverberates throughout the world, we at HRN are especially concerned about how coronavirus will impact our food system. We will use our platform to support the restaurant, agriculture, hospitality, and other food-related industries by maintaining our coverage and operations. As social distancing becomes the temporary norm, podcasts are more important than ever. There's never been a more crucial time to stay informed about the state of our food system and the way that food connects our global community. We're sharing all of our COVID-19 coverage at heritageradionetwork.org slash COVID-19. From interviews with nonprofit leaders and journalists, to firsthand accounts from chefs and restaurant owners, to reports on how the crisis is affecting regional farms. Our team is working remotely from all over to keep food radio alive. HRN needs your support more than ever to keep sharing essential stories and resources with our listeners. Make a donation of any amount. Visit heritageradionetwork.org slash donate. Hello, this is Dana Cowan, and you are listening to Speaking Broadly on Heritage Radio Network. The episode that follows is one that I recorded before the coronavirus chaos took complete hold. At first, I held it back thinking this is just, it's too heavy at a time when everything around us is so troubled. But in fact, I find Roseanne's approach to life and death so inspiring that I'm bringing it out to share with all of you to offer some good thoughts about how we live our lives. I hope you enjoy it. Hello, this is Dana Cowan, and you are listening to Speaking Broadly on Heritage Radio Network. Today, I'm excited to have as my guest someone who has cooked for presidents, mayors, prime ministers, has had award-winning cookbooks, books. We could go on for such a long time that we could use all of our minutes together talking about your accolades, but I want to welcome Roseanne Gold. It's so great to be here, Dana. Thank you. So something that I'm interested in testing, because I've never done it before, is starting with exactly what you're doing and what you're thinking about today, rather than flipping back through the pages and beginning at your beginning. One reason this seems so perfect for you is because you have a spiritual practice. And part of a spiritual practice is to be present and be in the moment. What I'm doing today, I'm very involved with uh, death and dying (laughs) and poetry. And the way I came to this was really through uh, grief and loss. My mother died in 2006. And I remember telling my husband that I didn't want him to worry, but that I didn't want to be alive right now. That's what the feeling was. It was so deep. And my mother and I were too close. I mean, that is really possible, right? I was sort of her everything. She was kind of my everything. And I'm curious curious about that. Oh, you lived in the same city? We did. I grew up in Queens. My mother still lived in Queens. And then uh, I live in Brooklyn now. And I think she felt like she probably had a good life. But I felt a lot of sadness for her and uh, a lot of dreams and hopes and possibilities that really didn't necessarily happen for her. So did you end up feeling like you needed to make her life better. I think that's right, Dana. Thank you for that. Suffice it to say, when she died, it was um, 
it was really hard. Also, I didn't have children. I have a stepson, uh, but she didn't really even get a chance to be a grandmother in the way I might have wished for her. So as you can tell, it's complicated. I have a brother. He's married. Also no children. So I don't know. It just brought up a lot of things. But it sounds like it brought up a lot of things for you for yourself, in addition for you for your mother. Definitely. And it's all based on, you know, intense amounts of love and care and compassion and deep, deep bonds. And I'm very into women and mothers and daughters. And the fact that I didn't have a daughter was very interesting. Maybe I'll share this right now. A couple of months before my mother died, I said to her, and I wasn't really sure whether to even mention this, but it was like a Pandora's box. I said, Mom, I just want to say I'm really sorry I didn't have children. And she said, the craziest thing to me. (laughs) She said, maybe it just wasn't the right time, which is an interesting thing to say to a 52-year-old woman. But I was so grateful. So she didn't feel a kind of loss at that. And it was a very liberating, freeing feeling for me to have her say that to me. Right. Meaning the time could be now. Well, Dana, so what happened, in fact, is that I became a mother at the age of 53. I, that year, adopted. My husband helped. Uh, He he said yes. Uh, Adopted our daughter when she was 11 and a half. And that's a whole nother story. So in a funny way, my mother was actually prophetic in saying that it just wasn't the right time. Did she put that idea in your head, though? Not consciously. No. No. (laughs) I think it had more to do with uh, sort of filling the need and the loss after she died. Um, But the end-of-life doula stuff had to do with finding a way to deal with my own loss and grief and to understand more about death and dying. I was with my mother when she died. She died at home in her apartment in Queens with another very close friend, and my brother was there and my husband. But I had never seen anyone die before. I mean, I was a complete neophyte when it came to this and frightened and uh, confused and overwhelmed and all of those things. I I think most of us are, right? I mean, it's very special. I was just with my stepmother-in-law last week, and she was in hospice. We had this extraordinary conversation. She was completely present. She was funny. She was asking questions. She had no fear. She was completely Mm. calm. And she died that night. I mean, so we weren't there at the moment, but we were there so close to the moment. It was very special. That's extraordinary. Tell this me about is, your mother. I don't know if that situation was anything. Well, you similar. know, the funny thing is, uh, and also because of my work in hospice and as an end-of-life doula, I'm seeing more, much more of this kind of attitude towards the end of life. And I think many of us, in a way, can really feel good about that, that there's something very maybe natural about this process and our acceptance towards the end when someone is really burdened with a lot of regrets and sadness and and loss and and guilt, uh, it can make it much more, much more complicated. But my mother, what's so remarkable is that she, the last couple of days, started reciting poetry and was really warm and present and also kind of funny. Was that unexpected for her? No, she was always surprising us. (laughs) So, (laughs) So... Well, I think it was just unusual for me, again, just feeling so overwhelmed, never having been in this place before. And you you talked about fear. Like, what was your fear in that moment? Well, the fear of what would life be like without Mm. her. She took up so much of it, also Mm. in a very, very beautiful way. The physical, like, what happens? What are the stages of dying? What to look for? Uh, concern whether she was in extreme pain, mm-hmm. uh, if she had trouble, you know, breathing, you know, would I, would, would I know what to do? Just a lot of that. And not everyone necessarily would feel that way, but those were my, my issues. And that's why I feel learning about end of life and death and dying, there's not one of us, let's say, who will not be called on at some point in our lives to be this for someone, for someone very, very close, for a friend. And in a funny way, like learning CPR or the Heimlich Maneuver, I always feel like we're all obligated. So with CPR or the Heimlich Maneuver, there really is one, two, three, there's a diagram. I imagine with end of life, there isn't a diagram. But if you could simplify what you've learned, like what are the tools or skills that you feel people need to know? So there are many different aspects to this. I first got trained by the visiting nurse service. So this is like 13 years ago. They didn't know this phrase. They didn't use it. So I was really trained to be a spiritual care volunteer. And spiritual care very often 
might say to someone that it has to do with religion, but it, it doesn't. In, in fact, Dana, it actually just means showing up and learning how to be a presence and also knowing that there's nothing to fix. So it's really about the word almost companion, comfort, and being a presence. Not everyone has family either, and this is the other thing that I realized. And there's just nothing more important than having someone be present for you. Very often at the end of life, people really aren't even able to communicate or talk, but there's energy in the room. And uh, sometimes I'll even put my hand on someone's stomach and breathe with them. And sometimes it's just about holding hands. Uh, but of course, if a person is able to talk and communicate, um, just hearing kind of lasts thoughts and being able to say yes, that that's okay. With one person, this is actually a friend's mother, she said something so unexpected at the end of life when my friend asked her if she was afraid to die. And her mother said, you know, I'm actually a little excited <laughs> <laughs> to find out what's going to happen. So, you know, there's a lot of humor. There's a lot of uh, love that was present at end of life. But I think overall, I think I've been most astonished with the acceptance and the beauty. Is it hard to show up for someone who you've never met? Uh, no, but that's very interesting. So to get back to the questions, too, about what are some of the steps and what do you do? I prefer working in, quote, institutions as opposed to going to someone's home. And I think since I started to do this work soon after my mother died, it almost felt too intimate to go into someone's home and their bedroom and to play that role. And it was also my way to be trained to see what happened, let's say, in a hospice situation or in a hospital. So I tended to work in those kinds of places. So I was able to model after other people. And each situation, you know, is so very different. But you have to stop at the door of every room and really become very present with yourself, which is one of the reasons that it is mandatory to have a meditation practice in order to do, to do this work. So I only do 30 minutes a day, but I didn't miss it for years. I've become a little lapsed over the, over the last few months, but have learned to accept that too. But it's really important to enter a room in a very special way not about you. And, and there are lots of feelings and fears. And I remember the first time I walked into a room and saw someone who was so badly disfigured and how hard that was. And there's a feeling or something that you're kind of taught that that person is you. And when you really realize that, it changes everything. You'll look at this person and say, this is me. And uh, then you're able to walk in very differently and, and, and show up differently. Also, you know, you check some biases and prejudices at the door. On that point, <laughs> I wonder what you've learned about yourself in doing this work. I've learned that in order to really show up for someone, you have to be very centered. We're all human, so our feelings are our feelings, but you have to learn how to be fully human with someone else and be compassionate. And I think I've learned that over the years I have the ability to do that, but I still have a long way to go. I bring a lot of my own insecurities and my own stuff and my own old stories you know, to every situation as well. I wonder how much of the food, Roseanne, you bring <laughs> with you, because you are one of the most accomplished cooks and professionals in the world of food, and we're talking about end-of-life spiritual nourishment, but I wonder what type of physical nourishment. Yeah, well, it's um, interesting. So th those situations are so different. So when I worked in this hospice, it was called the Brown Goodman Hospice on the Upper East Side. It was like a little jewel box of a hospice because it only had eight rooms and everyone had a big, beautiful room with a great view. And some of the rooms had their own little kitchenettes. And for one man in particular, I would actually, the first thing I would do is make him a little breakfast in the morning. And at one point when I told him that I was chef for the mayor of New York and I used to make Ed Koch's breakfast too, I mean, he just lit up, right? This was really very <laughs> special. So he's, he's about to die and he's being cooked for by Ed's ex-chef. So sometimes there was that physical kind of cooking for. And I do remember that because of HIPAA laws, I can't actually mention his name, <laughs> but he was a very, very, very famous 
writer. Um, and I was probably the, the last one to give him hand massage and um, also to help him eat breakfast. And he was really struggling. And he had, was slogging through a bowl of uh, oatmeal. And he was really having trouble eating it. And I said, you know, let me get you a blueberry muffin. I think it'll be easier for you to eat. And I kind of tore it apart and I gave it to him and he put it to his mouth and he couldn't eat it. And I just remember the, the gesture. He kind of sh shrugged his shoulders and looked at me in a certain way and I just kind of mirrored that back for him because he grew up in Ireland, very, very, very poor where he had no food. And now it had kind of come to this. So there was it was a very poignant moment. I remember going into one patient's room, and he was this downtown artist, a really fabulous guy, and a lot of personality, and no fear at all. And I walked in one day, and I was really new at this. And he said, hey, Roseanne, will you rub my tumors? And I said, sure. <laughs> <laughs> so I did, and the truth is I probably shouldn't have. <laughs> maybe, right, maybe that wasn't the right protocol. But I was new, and I wanted to really show up. So there are some funny stories, there are some poignant stories. I remember there was a woman, who, her name was Bertha. I was so sure she was uh, Jewish. She couldn't communicate, and I started singing all of these sort of Jewish uh, songs and hymns and whatever. And her sister walked in, and I went, oh... And she literally was a sister. She was a nun, and they were quite religious and Catholic, but she seemed like she was enjoying just having a, a, a presence. With your mother, I'm wondering what, what role food played, because I'm sure you shared many, many meals. And as she was dying. I'm wondering what that food bond was. Well, the last couple of days, she really wasn't eating, and that's kind of what happens. But my mother and I had this funny dish. It was a wonderful dish. She was Hungarian by ancestry. So my favorite food growing up was cabbage and noodles. And all of these many, many years, we would make it for each other. This was like our dish of love. And um, mine was never quite as good as hers, even to this day. But that was one of the, the last things that she had was cabbage and noodles. Why do you think her cabbage and noodles was better? This, this is very surprising. <laughs> I think it was the 50-year-old saute pan that she used. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that definitely imparts a je ne sais quoi. It only had three ingredients, which is kind of funny. The, the dish was, you know, broad egg noodles, cabbage that is very thinly sliced, and heavily, heavily salted and then weighted down so all of the moisture is absorbed. And the whole thing is kind of cooked in a stick of butter. I think maybe she had more patience than I did in the way she would stir it and just let it really get to this. It almost started to look like caramelized onions. The cabbage gets that brown and soft, and then it's just mixed with the egg noodles and salt and pepper, and it's like the most delicious thing in the world. <laughs> so... Is that served in a casserole? Nope. You toss them together? Yeah, you just toss it in a bowl. And for those of you listening, Rosanna's famous for dishes that are fabulous, that have very few ingredients. In fact, one, two, or three. Yeah, I really had a laugh when I realized that that favorite dish did only have three ingredients. But something else poignant, too, about food and the mother-daughter communication through recipes over the years, it took me over three years to make it for my daughter, just to tell you how profound this connection of this dish was with my mother and me and also with her mother and, and her. It was almost the last thing I held on to for myself. It was really, I'm trying to write a story about this because it was very, very profound. What did it mean to give that to your daughter and what were you holding back for yourself? Yeah, I think for me, the most profound feeling was that I was holding back and I wasn't quite ready. And, you know, we met our daughter and uh, she moved in three days later and that was it. <laughs> and I became, well, I didn't become mom right away. It took her about a year to, to call me that. But it was a certain, almost like, was it a disloyalty to my mother? I don't know. It was so complex. I'm really still trying to unpack that. But I remember the day that I decided to make it for Shana and what that meant for me and for her. Tell me about that day. Yes. <laughs> well, there was a lot of ritual about it. I had a picture of my mother right next to me. This beautiful image that a very close friend took of my mother and me, just like with this beautiful little kiss face to face. And I thought about her mother, my grandmother, our ancestors, how this dish made its way from Hungary to my kitchen. I wear my great-grandmother's wedding ring from Hungary many 
in our family were killed during the Holocaust. I mean, this dish is loaded. <laughs> and here I am making it for my daughter and my daughter, who my mother would never get to meet. So that was also very tough. And my daughter's mother had died years before. So, you know, we were both in some ways, I think, really reluctant to completely let go of our mothers, both of us. She was a little girl. That's understandable. I'm a much older person, maybe less understandable, but but profound nonetheless. Oh, it was so great because I did make it, again, stirring the cabbage, trying to get it just like my mother's. And I, I knew it wasn't quite right, but I gave it to Shana. And I had no idea what she would say. I mean, she did not know what I was going through. She doesn't know the history of this dish. But she just said, mm, Mom, can we have this all the time? Oh. <laughs> and that was really great. And that's what she asked for now. If she needs a comfort dish, this is the one. What was the relationship of that dish between your mother and your grandmother? Same. So this is also what my grandmother, Louise, would make for my my mother. I don't know if my mother then also made it for her. I'm not sure it worked that way, but in our case, it was so symbiotic. That was definitely definitely what we did. But this is the power of food, and there are many stories. I actually had someone call me about a cake. Dana, maybe you remember this cake that I invented called Venetian wine cake, and it was for sale, Balducci's and Dina DeLuca, for a couple of years. And uh, 20 years went by, and I got a phone call from someone that they had a friend who was dying and that this friend wanted this cake as the last thing she ate. <laughs> and I was very much involved with the end-of-life doula work at that point, and I'm just th thinking, oh, my God, I mean, this is profound, too. Being in hospice and being part of this movement, have you heard a lot of stories about last meals? It's one of the questions I really don't like. Like, what what would you eat as your last meal? But I'm wondering if in the real world, people do have that sense of like what they would like and something that they ask for, as you just said, that someone had requested your cake. Well, if someone is very ill or in a lot of pain, I think this is not so much on their mind. But yes, other people definitely have real requests. And um, I worked at Mount Sinai on their um, palliative care floor. And there's someone who's even trying to create a program enabling patients to really have their last request. I don't know exactly how it's going, but it's a pretty noble idea because food comes with so, so many attachments and memories. And, you know, the sense of smell is so important and profound that it really can trigger beautiful, beautiful memories. And I do know a story, you know Grace Young, she's a wonderful cookbook author, and she shared a story about her mother was very, very sick and dying and refused to eat. And then Grace Young made these traditional Chinese dishes for her. And um, as soon as Grace opened the door to, I think, her bedroom or hospital room with this dish, like her mother was like, came to life and started eating and would only eat that. So this is not so conscious. I think there are more unconscious signals that happen around food at the end of life. One of the things that you said about your mother is that she started reciting poetry. Yes. And <laughs> you, I don't know if it was inspired by your mother, but it seems like you hadn't been a poet, but you turned to poetry. Well, a lot of things happened, right? So after 40 years being in, in the business, and how do we sort of move on and stretch and what becomes important? So this all got wrapped up into one big, interesting phase of my life, really. So after my mother died, I became an end-of-life doula. I went back to school to get my MFA in poetry, became a mother. And it all seems to be, you know, very, very connected. And the whole thing with poetry was in between patients, you would really have a lot of feelings. And I would go into um, a room by myself and I would find myself scribbling all over my worksheets. And I'm thinking, wow, this looks a lot like poetry. Maybe I should figure out what I'm doing. So I went to the new school and am trying to be a poet. I'm fascinated by the turn that your writing has taken because you've written so many books and now you're writing poetry and are teaching writing. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about writing about food and your extraordinary early career. Stay with us. During this time, it's more important than ever to support our friends and neighbors in the restaurant industry. 
Restaurant Workers Community Foundation has set up a national COVID-19 crisis relief fund. The money they raise will provide direct relief to individual restaurant workers, support other nonprofits serving restaurant workers in crisis, and offer zero-interest loans for restaurants to get back up and running. Visit restaurantworkerscf.org to donate today. And if you need a little extra motivation, you can DM your $20 donation to RWCF's co-founder, John DeBerry, on Twitter, and he'll give you directions for making a signature quarantine cocktail. Donate now at restaurantworkerscf.org. Welcome back. This is Dana Cowan, and you are listening to Speaking Broadly on Heritage Radio Network. Today, my guest is the one and only Roseanne Gold. We've been talking about some very heavy topics. We've been talking about the end of life, but also I find your perspective so enlightening and warming and reassuring because you've seen so many people at the end of life and it's still a door that you're willing to go through and want to go through to help others. And I think we do all live with so much fear. So often about the people very close to us, but if you step back, I mean, just the thing about those people who die alone and there's so many sad, sad situations. Yes. I mean, sometimes that's by choice. I remember having a friend who was a little bit of a walking Hallmark card who would, she was also a hospice nurse and she would go into a room and she goes, oh, that person had an amazing, happy life because the room was just filled with so many people and joy and laughter. And, well, my feeling about that was that's sometimes true, but sometimes when you go into a room and you see lots of people there, it's very possible that those people hadn't visited that person in the last 10 years, you know, so you can't judge. It is so individual for every single person. And some people would rather be alone, or maybe not completely, but to have peace and quiet and spaciousness. So for some people, having people in the room who are chanting or meditating or just some beautiful music or to have a a foot massage, it's just so different for, for everyone. Part of the time these days, you're teaching. I teach a class called The Language of Food, and I do have amazing guest speakers come. But I believe it's the first class of its kind to really look at menu language as a form of literature, specifically poetry, because of the form. And I talk a lot about the similarities between chefs and poets. And it's incredible, because when you think about it, the goal is the same. We're talking about words on a page. So what is happening when we read poetry? What is happening when we read a menu? What's going on in our brain? In fact, I have a neuroscientist who comes and teaches one of the classes to help us with this. Um, but Wait, <laughs> what has the neuroscientist <laughs> taught you? Because I, of course, have done some menu writing myself oh, and, no. you know, writing recipe titles. But neuroscience, I really haven't talked about that yet. <laughs> <laughs> we'll definitely get to that. But when you think about a chef and a poet and what you do when you write menus and even recipe titles, um, what you're doing is trying to trigger or elicit either a memory, a smell, an emotion. You're creating anticipation, hunger, longing. And why I think it's so fascinating is when you go out to eat, very few of us go out and say, I want chicken. Right, But what is it that's on the menu that is enticing you? Is it an unusual ingredient? Is it the way something is just worded? Very often I call them grace notes, that little extra uh, special word or image that really creates almost visual or flavor images in the brain. And it's very interesting about smells. Science used to tell us that 70% of taste is smell. It's probably really more 80 or 90, and this is really the new frontier. And it turns out that the olfactory hub in the brain is located about a half an inch or maybe even less from the place where memory is stored. So the potency of smells and smell images in the brain and memory is so fascinating. And I really think this is what's happening when you're reading words on a menu and also poetry. I would say today we're at the height of essentialism in menu writing, and it wasn't always the case. And I'm wondering whether in the same way that you've seen like the, the trends of poetry and you look at menu writing from the French to today, what do you think those rhythms are? Well, I think 
you could probably look at a menu from the 70s, 80s, 90s, and now and know exactly when. Because each decade, like schools of poetry, they each have a particular style. Today, I agree with you. I think sometimes some of the menus are so minimal that they don't elicit some of these things and feelings and flavors and aromas and memories that we're talking about. One thing I think about with menus as poetry is that when you have a minimal menu, you're filling in all those blanks yourself. And sometimes you fill them in wrong. And sometimes <laughs> you don't try to fill them in at all. I feel like it's the chef leaving space for themselves. They don't want to describe it too much. They don't want you to know every emotion. They don't want you to know what it really smells like or looks like. They want you to trust them to take you on a journey. And if they spell it out, if they add more words, then they're telling you rather than showing you with their dish, which, as you know, is the is a fundamental of writing that you really want to show, not tell. And so I feel like menus are actually now restrained because they don't want to tell. They just want to show you with the food. Well, I think that's true. And, you know, chefs are really smart. And I think they are doing a very good job. But we really are talking about more high-end fine dining. Because, you know, one of the books we use in the class, it's actually called The Language of Food. Very different than what I'm teaching, but it's an amazing book. And it's written by a linguist. So it's all about the words themselves. So Dan Jarofsky, who wrote this book, he's a linguist and a computer scientist. And he threw lots of menus into a computer and just did the most amazing analysis of word length and how much more money you can get for a dish if it had more words and what kind of words would de determine whether or not it was a high-end restaurant or a diner or fast casual. The more fast casual restaurants had words like crispy and uh, made to order and it just there's a whole science behind it. It's really very interesting. But at the high end, I think chefs are exercising more creativity and more personality. But then there are chefs who are actually writing real poetry on their menus, like Dominique Crenn, in that amazing woman chef in California. She actually has poetry on her menu, and I believe you're going to see it more and more. This is a trend. And why do you think that poetry will be the new menu form? Well, I think poetry is just uh, becoming essential in our world today, period. I think our world is very toxic. I think we're feeling very overwhelmed. We are in search of beauty and we're in search of connection with each other, but I'll also say we're in search of connection with ourselves. I think the one thing that smartphones and all this technology has done has absolutely robbed us of um, time alone, time with ourselves, time with our thoughts, time with our feelings. So poetry helps us do that. And I'm seeing the connection and the intersection of poetry everywhere. I just got the uh, new program for the 2020-2021 program at Jazz and Lincoln Center, and they're doing something really major with a very famous poet and music, and I'm just seeing it everywhere. So definitely it will be on restaurant menus. Well, let's dial back to your beginning as a trend spotter. You created menus at some of the most important restaurants in the history of restaurants in the U.S. Hmm. That may be true. It's just... <laughs> but, I had, but I had amazing teachers. It's just true. So will you just bring me back <laughs> to Joe Baum and some of those early projects that you worked on? Absolutely. So Joe Baum was considered the most important restaurateur of the last century, and it seems so crazy to say that. It doesn't feel that long ago, but he was the man who was responsible for the original Four Seasons restaurant, Charlie Zumzum, Fonda del Sol, and then, of course, Windows on the World, the first time in 1976, and then again in 1996. And he was also responsible for redoing and glamorizing the Rainbow Room. And then, of course, he did this with his partner, Michael Beitman, who happens to be my husband. So um, really lucky me that I got to learn from, you know, the maestro of wordsmithing, which was really Joe. And, and Michael, but they both learned from James Beard. So, um, so Joe did have a background in theater uh, design and um, really brought that to every single project he ever did, which is why he was called the father of the theme restaurant, which he really hated. But that was really just in retrospect, um, 
when he started, though, he brought this sense of entertainment and theatricality to, to everything. And uh, the, the idea of his restaurant permeated the menu, the decor, the wordsmithing, the narrative of the restaurant. So there are many restaurateurs today who still emulate Joe. And I think Danny Meyer is the one who probably references Joe more than anyone. Also, a while ago, uh, Richard Melman in Chicago and certainly others. And let's hear about your role in this group. (laughs) So I was first hired as the culinary director, and then I became the chef director of of the Joseph Baum and Michael Whiteman Company, and we did projects all over the world, so Windows on the World, uh, the Rainbow Room, but I was also very proud of a couple of other restaurants that I helped create. One of them was uh, totally over their objections, by the way, but I helped create the city's first pan-Mediterranean restaurant, and it was called Cafe Greco. And if you read the menu today, and this was in the late 80s, it really looks completely contemporary because it is borderless. And it was really all of the wonderful food, very Autolengi-ish, but this was in 1987, food from all of the countries of, of the Middle East, or the Eastern Mediterranean more specifically. And I was very excited about that particular restaurant. And then I also created the concept for the Hudson River Club. And the client really wanted a seafood restaurant, I think. And I said, let's do this. Let's do the Hudson River. Because I also, I was quoted by saying that I felt it was going to be the next little Napa Valley. And in fact, that's exactly what happened. And I had a friend who had a winery up there and I would go and cook the harvest dinners starting in uh, 1978. And I really saw what was happening. And we were very close friends with the people who started uh, Coach Farms. And it was just inevitable that this was going to be a land of great opportunity. And Bob Morgenthau, the district attorney, had Fishgill Farms, and he used to bring his apples and peaches to my apartment. And this is long before the farmer's market and Union Square and all of this. It was such an exciting time. Uh, So I was also very proud of of that. In both of those cases, you were ahead of your time. In the case of Cafe Greco, the notion of borderless cuisine, I mean, we're still trying to get there, actually. And in terms of the specifics of the menu, we've seen the rise of Israeli or that area most strongly in the last five years. And this for you was quite a bit before that. In the case of the Hudson River, we're seeing the Hudson Valley exploding now with lots of great hotels and beautiful farms, of course, that have been there, but people visiting them and recognizing the food of the region. How did those ideas come to you? And how did you have the confidence to say, no, no, like you guys want to do something else? I'm telling you, this is the thing. (laughs) Yeah. So where do ideas come from? That's a really always a good question. Uh, Very often in the middle of the night, that's how one, two, three came to me. I woke up in the middle of the night and I woke Michael up and I said, one, two, three, one, two, three. And he said, what are you talking about? I said, uh, recipes with only three ingredients, like chords and music. And he said, I get it, I get it, go back to sleep. So very often these things come in, in the middle of the night. But they basically, they used to say this about Joe, that he was too previous. And I think hanging out with him in, in his space, literally and figuratively, I learned to make connections and predict things. And some of them were just things that I wanted to come true. And then I was in a position to make them come true. So that was exciting, too. That is often a question, right? Did you make it happen? Or was it sort of inevitable and you saw into the future? Yes to both. (laughs) (laughs) And so in addition to poetry, are there things that you see into the future now that excite you? Mm, Let's see. Well, you know, I was even with the death and dying thing, I was a little uh, early to that, too, because, as I said, the end of life doula term just... uh, popped up in in 2006, and now there are other organizations certainly getting into this work and training people to do it. And I really do want to encourage everyone to maybe just take a weekend program or uh, to do some reading about this, because again, armed with information, you know, it's actually very, very liberating. And so death and dying, poetry, spirituality, and coming home literally to oneself and creating. I mean, I really think people are going to literally be very intentional about putting their devices down, about reclaiming time. Have you reclaimed time for yourself? Yes. 
not as well as I'd like to, but I'm really, but it has to be very intentional because we're so, you know, addicted to our habits. So I, I do have a meditation practice still. I do go on weekend retreats and workshops, either about spirituality or poetry. And this is maybe the biggest change for me, Dana, but I'm cooking for fun. <laughs> After 40 years of cooking for work, or cookbooks, or a restaurant project, or because I put so much pressure on myself that if anyone came to dinner, that it would have to be perfect, and they were expecting God knows what. I'm afraid that my daughter really didn't see cooking as, as a, something joyful. It was something else. I, don't, I won't say it wasn't with joy and pleasure, but it was work. It was a different kind of work. How did you release yourself from cooking as work to cooking as pleasure. Yeah, when did that happen? When I stopped writing cookbooks and I would often say to Michael, is it okay if I just cook to cook and not cook for the book? So right there, that is something so so separate. And then I think it also just had to do with cooking for my daughter and not having to care in the same way. It had to do with something else. I wanted to give her just something delicious or healthy. Um, so slowly things started to change. How did it change your cooking? Oh, let's see. It's very spontaneous. I cook from what's in my refrigerator. <laughs> so, so it's something different all the time. You have to be a good shopper then. I mean, just so there's things to pull from right. in order to be spontaneous. It sounds like you decided to stop writing cookbooks. Is that right? Yes. <laughs> That's definitive. Um, well, for the, for the time being, I mean, something interesting happened. Again, I believe for many women in different fields, too, there's a watershed moment after you do something for 40 years and how you want to spend the rest of your life, what's meaningful to you now, how to make certain shifts. So I decided, you know, Dana, in some ways I feel like I never really was known for a lot of the things that I did do because it was really too many in, in some ways. But uh, I was so afraid that I was going to die and it was going to say one, two, three on my tombstone <laughs> because most people mostly know me for the one, two, three cookbooks. And for me, it's maybe it was interesting and I loved doing it, but it was probably for me, not the most important contribution that I made. So I decided to take a look at my archives. It took about two years, and I worked with some young women, um, students who were in library sciences, just to take a look at what was there in my files. And I never really consciously saved things. But after two years, you know, there are 65 archival boxes. And it was really fun because one day, uh, one of the assistants said, hey, Roseanne, do you have any idea how many articles you've written? I said, well, I have no idea. She said, well, 600. You've written 600 articles. I go, wow, man, I didn't know that. And then another day, um, she came back to me and she said, do you have any idea how many recipes you've created? I said, I have no idea. And she said, 3,500. So at some point in time, perhaps I will put those recipes together and look at them in a very different kind of way, but almost chronologically, because they are organized into decades. So what were we eating in the 80s and the 90s? And it, it, it tells a story. So it's really a, a story of a kind of culinary anthropology, if you will. What ingredients? How did we name things? I don't know if a millennial has ever eaten a stuffed pepper. <laughs> There's some stuffed peppers around. Are there? <laughs> um, you've spent so much time you know, helping people as an end-of-life doula. I wonder, you had just said, the thing I want to be remembered for is not one, two, three. Because you spend so much time in the space, I imagine it makes you think, what do I want to be known for? In a way that someone at your age wouldn't necessarily. Have you come to a conclusion about that? Any thoughts? Mm. Boy, Dana, you really ask hard questions, thoughtful questions. I don't know the answer yet. I mean, there's a little part of me that uh, likes what they used to say about Joe, about being a little too previous. You know, I see myself as a real idea person and as a very giving, loving person. You know, during Hurricane Sandy, I also uh, started a pop-up soup kitchen in Brooklyn, actually at a local synagogue. Michael was really incredibly helpful to me in that too, but for a year and a half, I didn't miss a day every morning, and I was in charge of a group of people, and they came from New York Cares and volunteers. After a year and a half, we prepared 185,000 meals. 
And the story of how that happened is that the rabbi called, and he was in conversation with Brad Lander, who is the, the city council in Brooklyn, and said, we need to do something. So I woke Michael up. I said, we need to do something. And we took some money. We went to Key Food. We bought some food. And when I got to the, the synagogue, there were 100 people in line waiting to help. And they did have a kitchen, but we didn't really have anything that we needed. And I said to myself, what can everyone do? Everyone can boil a dozen eggs, and everyone can bring a loaf of bread. So by the next day, we had something that looked like 10,000 hard-boiled eggs and hundreds and hundreds of loaves of bread. So obviously, we started making egg salad sandwiches, and that led one thing to another. And then it became known as a very, very joyful place to work. And uh, we always had people, you know, 15 to 20 every morning doing this for a couple of hours, and that was a very gratifying thing to do as well. So looking at food as a, as a gift is my gift, as an offering. Yeah, I don't sing and dance, so I cook. <laughs> <laughs> and we talked about people having thoughts about food at the end of their, their life. And I made fun of the last meal <laughs> as a construct. But what is the most nourishing dish to you? Would it be the, the cabbage and noodles, or is there... Nah. <laughs> I mean, it might be. It depends on who served it to me, right? If it was um, my daughter, if she made it for me, I'd be very, very happy. I think about my favorite foods, and these are kind of funny things, and I don't think this is really what a body would crave at the end of life, but I happen to love smoked salmon. I adore gorgonzola, Italian gorgonzola dolce. It's one of my favorite foods. Oh, I love mint chocolate chip ice cream. Um, I love red wine. I love coffee. I'm not sure I would want any of these at the end of life. But one of my favorite things is to dip really, really good bread into a perfectly made vinaigrette. And I don't know what that is, but it is my favorite thing to do, either into the vinaigrette or into chicken drippings after you've made a perfect roast chicken. These are my favorite things. <laughs> At the end of each show, I ask the guests to tell me about a, a product that they think is better than the hype. So people talk about it and you're like, no, 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 you don't understand. It's so much better than that. What's your favorite? Well, it's got two parts because my favorite ingredient that I have in my house at all times, I cannot live without it, is tahina, sesame seed paste, because I do some of the most unexpected things with it. Yes, I make a tahina sauce that I drizzle over everything. One of my new favorite things is to grill a piece of tuna, fresh tuna, really, you know, rare in the middle, and to make a tahina that is actually pureed with pieces of whole lemon, so you have the rind too, so it is garlicky and lemony, and pour this over the, uh, the seared tuna steak. It's like, <laughs> it, it takes, you know, three minutes to make. It's fantastic. But I also use tahina instead of cream when I make ganache. So it's amazing. This I had to write an article for Gourmet Magazine once, and it had to be kosher, and it was about Hanukkah. It was a three-ingredient Hanukkah. And I wanted to do something with chocolate, and again, you can't use milk because I did this um, roast in the style of Gravlox, which is an interesting recipe too. Anyway, so I decided to melt chocolate and add uh, tahina instead of cream and added some plumped currants and poured them into tiny little fluted candy papers. And it tasted like a chunky, like truffles, like that chunky candy we grew up with. So I realized that tahina really just did have many, many, many uses. So it's an amazing product, but the best one I've had recently is from Seed and Mill. This is a fantastic woman-owned company that's located in Chelsea Market, and they also make halva. But uh, I believe they mail order this all over the country. It's, so it's, for me, the best. Hey, shout out to Seed and Mill. Fantastic. <laughs> and the, the last uh, question of the show is, is there a woman you'd like to give a shout out to? Someone who you believe deserves to be better known? Yes, absolutely. My mentor is a remarkable human being. Her name is Dr. Judy Nelson, and she is the head of palliative care at Memorial Sloan Kettering. And um, I met her when my mother was so sick decades ago at Mount Sinai, and she's just extraordinary and very unsung. She was my father's doctor. 
Oh my goodness. <laughs> well. She was really great to him, I have to say. You see what I mean by her not being quite sung, but I have a feeling there are many people all over that have this same feeling. Yeah, she was she was great. She was she was super supportive. She was just so human and it's fascinating to me that she went from what she was doing to doing palliative care because she was really great at that piece of it. That's a very unexpected ending to the show. (laughs) Um, Thank you so much for coming. I I loved hearing your perspective on food and on, on life. And it's so interesting because the two of us spent, I mean, I spent 20 years, you spent 40 years inside of food. And you would think as a result of that, the, the thing that we'd each be most proud of would be the recipe, the cookbook, the restaurant. And in fact, it sounds like the place that you are in in your life, the things that are most important to you are about nourishment, but really of a, of a I don't want to say it's a higher level, but of a spiritual nourishment. And for me, I'm, I'm after similar related but not the same exact goals and so it's beautiful to have the the conversation and and recognize how food is a transit to an extraordinary place and the place that it's transited you to is helping people at the end of their life but also many other things and for me it's in transit to to capture people's stories that are about so so much more than food so thank you for joining me and thank you amanda thank you michael for for joining us even though you're very quiet and nina always without you there's nothing and of course for all of you listening there's also nothing without all of you um i hope you've enjoyed the show if you did i hope you subscribe rate and review on Apple Podcast or wherever you listen to your podcasts and join us again next week for another incredible Speaking Broadly. Have a great week. Speaking Broadly is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without the support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like. Tell your friends. And please, join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.